If you got your Bibles, I hope that you do. Open them up to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there is a hardback black Bible under the chair in front of you. If you're using that Bible, we're going to be on page 222 together. We're in a sermon series this summer that we're calling More Than a Story, God at Work in Our Lives. And in this series, we're looking back at some of our favorite Bible stories from the Old Testament to see the hope and the encouragement that they provide. We're we're doing that because it's important to understand that all of Scripture, the New Testament, where we tend to spend most of our time, but also the Old Testament was given to us to encourage us and equip us to live on mission for Christ. The book of Romans tells us that. Romans 15.4 tells us that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The Old Testament and the many stories of the people of God that it contains aren't just ancient history that makes for good bedtime stories with our kids. These accounts have been preserved for us to give us hope. They've been preserved to help us live a life of faithful obedience to all that God has called us into. And so we're looking at some of our favorite stories from the Old Testament to see just how true that is. And this morning, we're going to be considering the story of Ruth. Now, we all know the the story of Ruth, right? She's the faithful daughter-in-law of Naomi who stuck by Naomi's side even as Naomi left her homeland of Moab and led her back to Israel. It's a great story. In fact, most scholars agree that the book of Ruth is, is a, a masterpiece of ancient literature. But our Bible is more than just entertaining literature. And there's more here than just a good story, because as we look at this account closely, what we're going to see is that the story isn't just about Ruth. This story is about God working through faithful people to bring about his purposes. That's what we're going to see today. So the main idea as we consider the story of Ruth today is that God works through faithful people to accomplish his purposes. That is our main idea as we consider the story of Ruth. This book is showing us in beautiful detail how God works in and through faithful servants to bring about his purposes. God uses ordinary people, people who are struggling, broken, bitter, and helpless, People who are succeeding, blessed with abundance and happy. He uses ordinary people who are faithful to him to bring about his purposes. That's what we're going to see today. God works through faithful people to accomplish his purposes. That's our main idea. If you walk away with nothing else, walk away with that. And with that in mind, we're going to dive right in. Ruth chapter 1. We're going to begin with just the first five verses There in chapter 1. The Bible says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. 
So the women was the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Can we pray? Father, as we look to this story of Ruth, I ask that you would help us to see everything that it is teaching us. Help us to see how you work through faithful servants. Servants like Naomi, servants like Ruth, servants like Boaz, who are obedient to what you have called them into and live to exalt your name. Help us to see that in a time and in a world where people do whatever seems right to themselves, we can be used by you to bring about your purposes. And as we see that, help us to live in that faithfulness. Speak to us today as we consider your word. It's in your beautiful name that I pray. Amen. Have you ever noticed how every great story, it seems, begins with a great opening line? It seems the two are tied together. Just think of some of the classics. Charles Dickens begins his classic A Christmas Carol with the memorable line, Marley was dead to begin with. And Herman Melville captured our attention in Moby Dick, Moby Dick with the unforgettable opener, Call Me Ishmael. Even the venerated Dr. Seuss drew us into his epic, The Cat in the Hat, with his opener, The Sun Did Not Shine, It Was Too Wet to Play, So We Sat in the House All That Cold, Cold, Wet Day. Every great story, it seems, begins with a great opening line, a single sentence that can grab our attention and draw us in, that sets the stage for everything that follows. And that's also true here in the book of Ruth. This ancient masterpiece begins with an opening line that sets the stage for everything that will follow by helping us to see that the story of Ruth begins in darkness and despair. That's how it begins. Take a look at verse 1. The Bible says, in those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The story of Ruth begins in gloom and anguish. It begins in a land that's been struck with a famine. But the famine is only half the problem. You see, these events that we're reading about here take place in the days when the judges ruled. And to truly understand what that's telling us, it's helpful if you'll turn one page back in your Bibles to the last chapter in the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25 ends the book of Judges by telling us, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The era of the Judges was an era that was ruled by the attitude of, I'm going to do whatever I want. It was a time of violence, idolatry, moral depravity, faithlessness toward God, civil war. We actually saw a little bit of that last week as we looked at Samson and Delilah. But that's the period in which these events took place. And that's important to remember. Because in a time where most people are faithless, the story of Ruth presents us with a picture of God working through a handful of people who are faithful to him. And I'd like to show you that today. So today, we're going to look at the three main characters in the story of Ruth. We're going to look at Naomi, at Ruth, and at Boaz. And as we do, what we're going to see in each one is faithfulness at, the work, at work in the lives of ordinary people. 
These are people just like you and me. They're people who are struggling to live faithfully in a world controlled by an attitude of, I'm going to do whatever I want. These are people we should be able to, to identify with. After all, doesn't that sound like our world today? We live in a world that, that's a world of, I, I'm going to just do whatever makes me happy. We live in a world where up is down, right is wrong, good is bad. These people are people we can identify with because we live in a world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And so in a lot of ways, the, the faithfulness that we're going to see going on here is, is going to be faithfulness that will serve as an example of what real everyday faith in action should look like for us. Now, we do not have time to read the entire book of Ruth together this morning. So that's my homework for you today. I would like you to go home and this afternoon sit down and read the entire book of Ruth in one sitting. It's four chapters long, 85 verses. If you're a slow reader, it will take you at most a half an hour to read. But go home, read the whole story, because I think after we talk this morning, you're going to begin to see in detail what I only have time to highlight right now. So, so can you do that? That's your homework. I know I don't give you homework often, but, but go home, read the book of Ruth. I have faith in you. I know you can do it. Like I, I've read it like four or five times this week. You can do it, I promise. Anyway, the, the story begins there by introducing us to Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, in the beginning of chapter one. We, we just read this. The couple is from Bethlehem in Judah, and, and as a famine comes upon the land, Elimelech leads his family out of Israel down to the country of Moab. And while in Moab, Elimelech dies. Naomi is widowed in a foreign land, but still, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion stay there in Moab. Eventually, the boys marry Moabite women, but then the tragedy grows as both sons die, and Naomi is left broken, bitter, and confused. We need to understand this, because when we read the story of Ruth, often we start thinking about Naomi, and what we think about is this faithful mother-in-law who's just doing her best to provide for her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth. That, that's what we think of when we think of Naomi, but that is not the biblical picture of Naomi. Naomi is presented to us in, in the Bible as a woman who is bitter and broken. In fact, if you'll fast forward down to the end of chapter 1, skip down to verse 19, we see this play out. The, the Bible says there in verse 19, So the two of them, that's Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi and, and Ruth have just arrived back in Bethlehem after traveling from Moab. And the whole town is talking about them. But Naomi's testimony about herself is that she's bitter. That's what that word Mara means. It means bitter. Her situation is so bad that she wants to change her name from Naomi to Mara because she's bitter. And understandably so. I mean, look at what's fallen into her lap. She, she left with a husband and two sons 
but she's returning a widow and childless. She doesn't have a husband to protect or provide for her. She's, her sons are dead, so, so she's not going to even have any hope of social standing, let alone carrying on the family line. She's aging. She's past the point where remarrying and having more children are even an option for her. So she's in this pretty hopeless situation, and, and as we see that, it's understandable that Naomi is dealing with some bitterness here. But as we consider Naomi, what I want you to see is that even in her bitterness, there's faith. Go back up now to verse 6 in chapter 1. Naomi is in Moab. Her husband and her sons are dead. She is bitter and broken. But then the Bible says that she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi has heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord has visited his people in Israel. And he has provided food for them. He's ended the famine. Now, we don't know how she heard. We don't know how the word came to her. In an era before the internet, before television or radio or even newspapers, it almost certainly came by word of mouth. This is a rumor. And what we need to understand is that there is no way for Naomi to confirm this rumor. But faith, faith in God's provision. Faith in God's loving kindness toward his people leads Naomi to act. Naomi is broken and bitter, but what we're beginning to see here with Naomi, and, and what will be even clearer as we continue through the story, is that faith sustains us in our brokenness. Naomi's faith is sustaining her even in her bitterness and her brokenness. And that should encourage us because a lot of us have experienced brokenness. It's a common misconception that suffering, that brokenness, that pain and hurting are antithetical to a life of faith. We're immersed in a culture that proclaims a false gospel that if you become a Christian, if you place your faith in Christ, you will only experience blessings and joy. It's a false gospel that says you'll never experience hardship. You'll never experience sadness or grief or pain. That's what we are immersed in today. But that's not, not true. It, it just isn't. The biblical picture is that there will be suffering. There will be hardship. We will experience brokenness and pain because we live in a world that's broken by sin. But one of the beautiful things about the Bible is, is that it doesn't try to hide that. The Bible shows us real people living real life with real struggles and real suffering. But it also shows us that we have a God who extends his loving kind to, kindness to us in the midst of that suffering. We can trust him in our suffering. We can trust him in our brokenness and our pain. We, we may not understand. We may be perplexed, but our faith can sustain us in our brokenness. 
because our faith leads us to trust God. Even when it hurts, even when we're fighting with bitterness or pain, that's what's happening here with Naomi. She's bitter and broken, but she has faith. And that faith leads her to act. So she begins to head home, back to her people, back to her land, back to her God. Even in her broken and bitter state, her faith leads her to act. Keep that in mind. But as the story continues, the focus is going to shift from Naomi over to Ruth. And, and as they're heading northwest toward Bethlehem, Naomi stops to send her daughters-in-law away. In, in many ways, it's, it's an act of kindness. After all, these, these women are Moabites. They're not Israelites. They're foreigners. They're widows. They have no one to protect or provide for them. They had no reason to expect any kind of welcome or, or kindness when they got to Bethlehem. Orpah and Ruth's position in life is utterly hopeless, and so it makes sense that in Naomi's mind, the absolute best thing for them is to send them back to their families. And so she tries to send them home. Orpah leaves, but Ruth does not. And she doesn't because something's happened here with Ruth. Skip down to chapter 1, verse 15. Take a look at this. The Bible says, and she, this is Naomi talking, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. As Naomi tries to send Ruth away, she reminds Ruth that she's not an Israelite. She, she tells her, in essence, listen, Orpah was right. Go back. Follow after her. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. But even in her hopeless situation, something has changed with Ruth. She's developed her own faith in Yahweh. Look at how she responds there in verse 16. The Bible says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, Ruth's statement here is beautiful on multiple levels. And while at first glance, this appears to be just this poetic declaration of fidelity to Naomi, what we need to recognize is that there's far more here than just that. What we're witnessing here in Ruth is Ruth's testimony of a conversion. Ruth has chosen to follow the Lord. That's what she's saying there in the middle of that statement. Look at the second half of verse 16 again. She says, your people shall be my people, your God, my God. And here's the thing. In the Hebrew, it's even more emphatic than that. In the Hebrew, it's literally your people, my people, your God, my God where Naomi was just telling Ruth to return to her people and her gods, Ruth is telling Naomi that she's already with her people and with her God. Her mind is settled. Her faith is in the Lord. This statement here isn't primarily a statement of commitment to Naomi. It's a statement of commitment to Yahweh. 
You see, living life with Naomi over the last few years has made its mark. Naomi has clearly been a witness to her. Even in their suffering, she shared her faith in the Lord. And at this point, the hopeless Ruth has come to the place where she has placed her faith, her hope in the Lord as well. So she's boldly telling Naomi, I'm going with you because I belong with Yahweh's people because Yahweh is my God. That's what's happening here. And so what we're seeing in Ruth is that faith takes bold steps. Don't don't miss this here. Ruth has placed her faith in the Lord, and, and so she's going to go with Naomi, even though she's a Moabite, even though she's a widow. She's going to leave her homeland. She's going to leave her extended family and go to Israel to worship and serve the Lord in Israel because her hope isn't in her homeland. Her hope isn't in her family. Her hope is in the Lord. This is a bold step that she's taking. But that's what faith does. Faith takes bold steps. And what we ought to recognize is that it's the same thing for you and me. As we place our faith in Christ, that faith is going to lead us to take some bold steps. Your life is going to change. As you place your faith in Christ, you're going to begin to put sin to death. You're going to begin to prioritize living for Christ, living the way he calls you to live. And what we need to recognize in that is that there will be a cost involved with that. There will be some things that we will have to give up in order to serve the Lord. In the world's eyes, it's not going to make any sense at all. But faith requires boldness. You see, you you can't just say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. I, I believe in Jesus. Because faith is more than just words. The, the book of James tells us that in the New Testament. In James 2.14, James asks a couple of questions. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, now this section of the book of James has, has become very controversial for some people because some people see it and they say, oh, this is proof that, that you're saved by your works. But what I need you to recognize is that those questions that he's asking right here, they are not questions about earning salvation by works. They're questions about the genuineness of your faith. Faith leads us to take bold steps. Faith leads us to act, which is why James sums up his argument by saying down in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, if all you have is what you say, then you don't have real faith. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Because real faith requires action. Real faith will work itself out in bold steps that we take. You see, you can't just say with your mouth, I believe that Jesus is Lord. You have to actually live with Jesus as the Lord of your life. You have to live to serve him. And that's going to require boldness. In a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, which is the world we're living in, faith takes bold steps. So Ruth takes this bold step of, leaving Moab, 
to travel to Bethlehem with Naomi. And chapter 1 ends by telling us that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, I'm I'm highlighting that last verse in chapter 1. I need you to just take that nugget and save it for later. As we move into chapter 2, Ruth takes another bold step. She and Naomi need food to eat, but they don't have anyone to provide for them. So in a time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, Ruth places her faith in Yahweh's provision and goes out to glean in the fields. Now, gleaning was the practice of of gathering grain after the harvest. Even before the conquest of Canaan, the Lord commanded his people in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24 to take care of the poor, to take care of widows and foreigners by leaving the edges of their fields unharvested and leaving any grain that they dropped in the process of harvesting for those people to come back after them and pick up. That's, That's what gleaning is. But again, remember the time in which we're living. We're living in a world where everybody does whatever they want. They're not faithful to the Lord's commands. They don't care what he said. And as we recognize that, we recognize how big a step, how bold a step it is for Ruth to go out there. She's vulnerable. This young woman with no one to protect her is going out into the fields. But she goes out to glean. And before she does, the narrator gives us another important detail that we need to hold on to. Chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. In, In this narrator's aside, Boaz is introduced to us as a worthy man. And what we need to understand about that description there is where we see that used in the Old Testament. What that's telling us is that this guy has has integrity. He has godliness. He is a man who lives to serve the Lord. Boaz is a standout in an era where everybody's doing whatever they want. He's faithful to the Lord. He obeys the Lord's command. And we're going to see that in how he speaks and how he behaves but he's also a legal relative of Naomi's. Again, this is just another important detail that we can't pass over. Store that away. Because as Ruth goes out to glean, the Bible tells us that she happened to end up in a field owned by Boaz. And as she's out there in the field gleaning up the the leftovers, the Bible tells us that Boaz happened to show up at his field. He left Bethlehem and came out to the field. And when he gets out to the field, he walks over to his foreman and he's like, hey, who's that woman over there? And his foreman explains that she's the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. He explains how hard she's been working to gather up the grain. And remember, the the end of chapter 1 tells us that when Naomi came back, everybody in town was talking about her. So he's heard the rumors about this woman, Ruth, but he doesn't know who she is. But now he meets her. And so Boaz goes over and he talks to Ruth, and I I want you to see this. So take a look at chapter 2, starting at verse 8. This is the conversation they have. The Bible says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty... Go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. 
As the narration keeps going, what we're going to see is, is Ruth is just completely overwhelmed by Boaz's grace and generosity. But that grace and generosity doesn't stop right there. They, they keep working and, and lunchtime comes and Boaz calls Ruth over to have lunch with him and his workers. And, and he's so generous there with the food that verses 15 and 16 tell us he, he had or that she had leftovers to take home with her. And then we move down, and, and the narration continues. So go down to verses 15, because his generosity continues. Verse 15 says, When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the forbidden, or sorry, pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Now, do, do you see what's happening right here? Boaz is living up to his title of being a worthy man. He's obedient to the Lord's commands in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He's allowing Ruth to glean from his crops, but, but did you see how far beyond the commands he went? He's, he's not only allowing her to glean, he's, he's providing protection for her. He's told his young men, leave that woman alone. Let her do her thing. And not only is he doing that in a, in a world where Ruth was vulnerable, he's, he's also telling her to stay in his fields with his people. But it doesn't stop there. He provides for her needs. He gives her lunch. He allows her to drink from their water. That would never have happened. This is huge right here. But then... When they go back to glean, it gets even more. He, he tells the harvesters, let, let her harvest right with you. Take some of the harvest and, and drop it on the ground. Be intentional. Take these sheaves, drop them over here for her to pick up. Do you see how, how he's just going way beyond the letter of the law? He's going beyond the letter. His faith is leading him beyond the requirements, and it's, it's leading him to enforce the spirit of the law. His faith goes beyond the requirements. That's what's happening right here. He, he's doing everything he can to care for this widow, this foreigner. And what I want you to recognize is that that's what faith does. Faith goes beyond the requirements. It did with Boaz, but it does with us as well. You see, our faith leads us to change our questions from, is what I'm doing a sin, to, is what I'm doing glorifying God? Our faith leads us to go from trying to meet the bare minimum requirements to looking for ways that we can excel. So instead of asking questions like, how can I earn God's favor? We ask, how can I be God's hands and feet? How can I serve the Lord where he's placed me? Our faith leads us to be generous. It leads us to be a people who extend the same grace and mercy and blessings that we have received from God, and we take those and we extend them to other people. Faith goes beyond the requirements. That's what we're seeing right here. And as the story continues, what we're going to see is, is these three characteristics of faith. Faith sustaining power and brokenness. Faith, faith leading us to take bold steps, faith going beyond the requirements. What we're going to see is these three characteristics of faith continuing to be at work in these three individuals. 
So chapter 2 ends with Ruth going back to Naomi and telling her of Boaz's generosity and provision. And as she does, we get to see some of Naomi's bitterness begin to wane as her faith continues to sustain her in her brokenness. Naomi prays this prayer of blessing over Boaz and then explains how Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. And that's another concept we need to discuss for just a minute. It comes from Leviticus chapter 25. You see, the, the Bible instructed that in Israel, if, if a man died, his unmarried brother was required to marry the widow and bring offspring for his, her, his brother. They, they would even go as far as to name that firstborn after the deceased brother. The law also required that in Israel, if someone became poor and they had to sell their property or if they fell into slavery, that property or those individuals could be redeemed back. They could be purchased back by a close family member. It was God's good provision for families to protect and take care of families. And while Boaz is, is not a brother of Malon or Kilion, he is a close relative, so he's able to act in that capacity. So Naomi tells Ruth to stay close to his people for the rest of the harvest, and she does. In chapter 3, the harvest has ended, but Naomi's faith leads her to encourage Boaz to pursue marriage, leads her to, to, to encourage Ruth, sorry, not Boaz, to pursue marriage to Boaz uh, by redemption. She tells Ruth to change her clothes out of her mourning clothes, to, to take off the clothes that say, I'm mourning over my dead husband and put on regular clothes and then go over to Boaz. And then Ruth, her faith leads her to take more bold steps. After the harvest, late one night, she goes down to Boaz and, and, in, and as she does, he's there laying down on the ground sleeping where they've been threshing the grain and, and in a ceremony that scholars cannot explain, like we have no idea why she does this, she goes and she uncovers his feet. And then she lays down at his feet and waits for Boaz to respond. Boaz wakes up. He sees Ruth laying there at his feet. And, and Ruth proposes, bold, boldly proposes, that he redeem her. And, and again, now we're going to see Boaz's faith going beyond the requirements even more. Because remember who Ruth is. Remember who Boaz is. Boaz is not Malon or Kilion's brother. And Ruth is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. So there's absolutely no requirement for him to redeem her. And yet he agrees. He agrees to redeem her. He agrees to marry her. But he says, first, I have to talk to a closer relative who has first right of redemption. Chapter 3 ends with Boaz sending Ruth back to Naomi and he sends her back with several weeks of food. And then in chapter 4, Boaz immediately goes to talk to that other redeemer. And at first, that other redeemer wants to, in, to redeem Naomi's land. But, but when Boaz says that Ruth is part of the deal, he backs out and says, that'll mess up my inheritance. You can go ahead and redeem her. And so Boaz does. The story ends with Boaz agreeing to buy Naomi's land and take Ruth as his wife. But there's something really great here at the very end of the story that I want you to see. So take a look at chapter 4, starting at verse 13. The Bible says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. 
Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Where our story began with brokenness and despair, it ends with jubilation and praise. Bitter Naomi is given joy and redemption. Hopeless Ruth has found hope and a family, and obedient Boaz is given a lineage and a legacy. That's how the story of Ruth ends. But, but now that we see that, we, we've got to just zoom out and look at the big picture one more time. As we've been considering the story of Ruth, we've been talking a lot about faith, right? We've seen the faith of bitter, broken Naomi, and, and in that faith, we've seen that faith sustains us in our brokenness. And then we've seen the faith of hopeless Ruth, and, and in that faith, we've seen that faith takes bold steps, And we've seen the faith of obedient Boaz, who showed us that faith goes beyond the requirements. The story of Ruth focuses the majority of its energy on these three people and their faith. And it almost feels like God is just in the background, doesn't it? He's not mentioned much. It feels like he's he's just there in the background, but the story is about their faith. But that's because he is. And that's what Ruth is teaching us. It's teaching us that God works through faithful people to accomplish his purposes. But to see that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. Remember how it all started. Chapter 1, verse 1, started by saying, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. In the days where there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, there was a famine in the land. There was death and brokenness and bitterness. But then we're introduced to these faithful people living ordinary lives in the brokenness. And throughout the story, we see the hand of God guiding them every step of the way. God used Naomi's faith to bring them back to Israel. And when did he bring them back? Right as the harvest began. That's God at work. And then God used Ruth's faith to go out and glean. And as he did, he brought her to the exact right field, a field that was owned by a man who could actually serve as her redeemer. And the way that it's worded right there, if you read through the text, it says, and she happened to come to this field. And then it says, behold, Boaz came out. And the whole way that the author has written this story is to help us see that it wasn't an accident. God was guiding every step of the way. So so as Ruth comes out to the field, we see Boaz's faith to care for widows and foreigners being used by God. And God brings him to the field that at the exact moment that Ruth is there working in the field. And then God enables him to redeem both Ruth and Naomi. 
And then the story comes to this close. And it ends with Naomi's joy restored, with Ruth's hope secured, with Boaz's family established. But there's one more thing that happens here. Did you see it there at the end of verse 17? Verse 17 says, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You see, the story of Ruth also ends with Israel's king enthroned. God worked through faithful people to accomplish his purposes. He restored Naomi's joy. He provided for Ruth. He gave Boaz a family, but he also gave Israel their king. And from that king, God would send another redeemer. God sent his own son, Jesus the Christ. He was descended from David, and he came to redeem you and me. You see, the Bible tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of a law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus became our once for all redeemer. When he bore God's wrath on the cross for our sin in our place so that we could be reconciled back to God. You see, the story of Ruth is part of the story of Jesus. God uses the faithfulness of people like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz to bring about his purposes in Jesus, who would be the ultimate once-for-all redeemer. And in that, we find hope. You see, the story of Ruth is teaching us our main idea, that God works through faithful people to accomplish his purposes. But when we see that, and we recognize that we're living in a day much like the days of the judges. When we see that we're living in a world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, when we see that we live in a world that, that is broken and seems to be falling apart, where, where maybe we feel a little bitter, where, where maybe we feel a little hopeless, where maybe we feel like we don't know what's going to happen, what we need to recognize is that our job isn't to fix the brokenness. Our job is to be faithful to our Lord and King. Our God job isn't to fix all the mess out there. Our job is to look to Jesus, keep our faith in him, and do what he's called us to do. Live how he's called us to live. Because God can use faithful people. He's done it in the past and he can do it now. He can use faithful people, people like you and me, to bring people who are in the midst of brokenness out of that brokenness. People who are in the midst of hopelessness out of their hopelessness. People who are trapped in darkness out into the light. God works through faithful people like you and me to accomplish his purposes. That's the hope we find here. But what I hope you're seeing is that it's also the challenge so the question we have to consider our, for ourselves is, will we be faithful? In a world that does whatever is right in its own eyes, will we serve and glorify God? Will we be like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz? Will our faith lead us to act? My prayer is that it will. That we'll be a people who make a difference for Christ as we live faithfully for him. Can we pray?
Father, I thank you for this word of encouragement that we find here in the story of Ruth. As we go out of here today, Father, I ask that you would help us to live this out. Give us faith that leads us to act. Faith that sustains us when we're broken and we we don't understand what's going on. We know we can trust in you. Faith that leads us to take bold steps. Steps that make no sense to the world around us but are obedient to what you've called us to do. Faith that looks for opportunities to go beyond the bare requirements. That we would live out our faith to love people and see people the way you see them. Sinners in need of a savior. Lost people in need of hope and restoration. And that we would live that out to proclaim your goodness in all that we do. God, help us to be a people who live more like Jesus. We love you, Lord. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.